1983, my parents took me to a brand new amusement park that had opened up in Disney World of Florida. It was called Epcot Center. It had opened the previous year, and it wasn't quite finished yet. The back half of Epcot Center, if you've ever been there, you know that there are a, a world showcase, they call it, a, a number of different so-called countries that sit around the lake. And you can walk and visit each country. And right now, I think there are 11 different countries that you can go visit on your trip there. And as you, as you walk through each territory, you get a sense of what it might look like or what it might feel like to go to that country. And so, for example, in Germany, you, you would walk through this beautiful European town, and you smell the sausage that they're cooking, and, and smell the, the beer that, well, Baptists probably shouldn't go to the German part. But anyway, in 1983, there weren't 11 so-called countries. There were only four. And uh, we, as we made our way past one empty lot to another empty lot, and finally, every so often, you'd come across a different country to visit, um, we finally made our way to what they called the United States. And uh, by that time, it was lunchtime, and so we ordered some cheeseburgers at a cafe there. And you just think about it. You, you know, you travel halfway across the United States to get to Epcot Center. You spend hundreds of dollars, and you get to visit the United States. It was absolutely amazing, you know, just incredible. So anyway, we got the food, and my mom took one bite of the cheeseburger, and there was a problem. And she showed us the problem uh, with this cheeseburger. And she went back to the counter, and she told the cashier, I ordered the cheeseburger but the burger is missing. And the cashier said, you mean we didn't give you any cheese? And my mom said, no, there's cheese. There, there's no meat on the burger. And he said, what do you mean there's no meat? My mom said, look at it. There's no meat on the burger. The cashier called the manager over to have basically the same conversation. The manager said, what's the problem here? And my mom said, there's no meat on the cheeseburger. And he said, how could that be? It's a cheeseburger. And she said, exactly. And he said, well, where did the meat go? And she said, I don't know. I suppose it's back in the kitchen, but it never made its way on the burger. And he said, would you like a refund? And she said, no, I would like a burger with cheese and meat. So it finally got worked out. You know, my mom survived not only through lunch, but she survived the conversation. And uh, it all got worked out. But have you ever expected something but then all you got was really a big nothing burger. I mean, there was just nothing. You didn't get anything. And so that could be sort of a disappointment, right? You know, you might become disheartened or you might leave the whole experience feeling even hungry, you know, in my mom's case. But the next step that you take when you're disappointed because you got nothing, when you expected something to be there, that next step that you take can make all the difference in the world. Now, I invite you, if you have access to a Bible, to turn to Ezra chapter 4. Ezra's in the Old Testament. So if you turn about to the middle of your Bible, you might find Psalms. You've gone too far back up just a bit. And Ezra's right after 2 Chronicles. Ezra chapter 4, and we're in the series Rebuilding Life Tools from Ezra and Nehemiah. And so when you turned, as you turn to Ezra chapter 4, let me tell you about 
the setting. In uh, the year 605 B.C., you have this guy named Nebuchadnezzar. And here's a beautiful drawing of what Nebuchadnezzar looked like. He was the king of Babylon. He was also, apparently, the possessor of the world's greatest unibrow. And he came to power in modern-day Iraq. And so the very first order of business when you come to power, you got to let everybody know who the new king of the hill is. And we're not talking Hank either. This guy wanted to show everyone who's boss. And so that year, he, he got his armies, and they traveled all the way to Judah, uh, to modern-day Israel, and they captured Judah and its capital city, Jerusalem. And thousands of people were taken into captivity, marched all the way back to Babylon. But not everyone. He left some of them. Now, why didn't he take them all captive? Wouldn't it be better just to take them all back to Babylon? Well, no, not necessarily, because he was a pretty shrewd businessman. You want to leave some people there so they can work the land, and then you can tax them to death, and they remain poor, and you remain rich. So, good plan. So, he left some of them there. Well, eight years later, in 597 B.C., the people of Judah rebelled. Much like our American forefathers, but unlike Americans today, they didn't like high taxes. And so they rebelled. And so Nebuchadnezzar's armies came back. And they took even more Israelites captive. Eleven years after that, in 586 B.C., the people of Judah and Jerusalem rebelled again. And Nebuchadnezzar said, really? We can do this all day. And so he sent his armies back a third time. And this time they had a basic order to things. The order was this. Break their spirit. And that they did. This time they invaded the capital city of Jerusalem, tore down its walls, and destroyed the temple. And even more Israelites were taken captive and marched all the way to Babylon right around the area of modern-day Baghdad, okay? And so that's the way things stood for about 50 years. For about 50 years there, there were no more rebellions. All of these Israelites were captive in modern-day Iraq until there was a new king. And the new king was from modern-day Iran. His name was Cyrus the Great. Now, have you ever noticed that these ancient kings, none of them ever suffer from a poor self-image. I mean, it's always Cyrus the Great, Alexander the Great. You never hear of Alexander the Inadequate, Marcus Aurelius the Mediocre. You never hear about these people. But anyway, Cyrus the Great, he comes up, he conquers Babylon in 539 B.C. And shortly thereafter issues a decree. And he proclaims that Israel's God, Yahweh, not his God, Israel's God, had appointed him to allow the Israelites to return to Jerusalem and Judah and to rebuild their temple. And not only that, but he provides the money, he provides the materials needed to carry out the project. And that's what we have in Ezra chapter 1. And so then 42,000 plus people return home to Judah Seemingly, every single one of them are named in Ezra chapter 2. And after that, when the people finally get to Jerusalem, they rebuild the temple's foundation, and they rebuild the altar, and they begin offering sacrifices 
to God. And that's Ezra chapter 3. Now, a most curious thing happened. Some strangers showed up. Volunteers showed up. And they said, let us help you rebuild the temple. So they go up to Zerubbabel, who's the governor of Judah, and some others, and they say, we want to help you rebuild the temple. Here's what we read in Ezra chapter 4, verse 1. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the family heads and said to them, Let us build with you, for we also worship your God. And we have been sacrificing to him since the time King Esarhaddon of Assyria brought us here. Well, isn't that nice? Isn't that neighborly? I mean, I, I just expect Mr. Rogers to take off his shoes and make himself right at home. Isn't this so kind of them that these kind people want to help rebuild Israel's temple? Well, here's the problem. It's actually not that nice. It's not such a good thing. It's a bad thing, and here's why. 200 or so years before, before Cyrus the Great in Persia, had conquered Babylon, and before the Babylonians had conquered all, the, all of uh, Judah, the Assyrians were in charge. And the Assyrians did to the northern kingdom of Israel what the Babylonians later did to the southern kingdom of Israel. They came in, invaded, and they took a whole bunch of Israelites captive. And they deported these Israelites to a foreign land. But not only that. Here's what else the Assyrians did. The Assyrians took a bunch of foreigners and they imported them and planted them in Israel. So now you have this mixture of pagans and Israelites living in Israel, living in the land that God had given Israel. And of course... These pagans, when they came in, they brought their own worship. They brought their own gods, with a small g, that they wanted to worship, and their own worship rituals with them. And so it didn't take long before pagan worship of these false gods got mixed in with the holy worship of the true God, the most high God of all, Yahweh. They even began to install apostate priests who would lead this perverted, and it's perverted in every sense of the word, so-called worship. And so you have this mixture of pagan and holy people in the north, living there for about 200 years. And eventually, this mixture became known as Samaritans. These were the people who approached Zerubbabel and the others and said, Hey, let us help rebuild the temple. We worship Yahweh too. That would be like someone telling us today, Hey, let's worship together. We worship Jesus too. We also worship Buddha and Muhammad and Elvis Presley. Well, guess what? That's just not going to happen. Thank you very much. Yeah, that's just not going to happen. And so this mixture 
of pagan and holy worship by the Samaritans, it caused tension in the land. And that tension existed all the way until Jesus' day. You remember, Jesus told a very famous parable about a good Samaritan. And that's why the parable of the good Samaritan is so shocking. No one would ever suspect a Samaritan of being a good person. And that's why Jesus had this interaction with the woman at the, Samar- at the in Samaria at the well in John chapter 4. And he changed her life, whereas all of the other Jews would have avoided her completely, but not Jesus. And so you had this mixture. The Samaritans came in, in Zerubbabel's day and they offered to help rebuild the temple. And here's the answer that Zerubbabel gave them in verse 3. But Zerubbabel... Jeshua and the other heads of Israel's family, families answered them, You may have no part with us in building a house for our God, since we alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. And the Samaritans did not like that answer one bit. And so they pushed back. Verses 4 and 5. Then the people who were already in the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build. They also bribed officials to act against them to frustrate their plans throughout the reign of King Cyrus of Persia and until the reign of King Darius of Persia. The Samaritans got so angry with that answer that they couldn't help rebuild the temple that they bribed Persian officials to cut off the funds or to harass the Jews or whatever they could do to cause trouble. Now, that's the general story here. The guy writing this story is a guy by the name of Ezra. The book's named after him. And he was actually on the scene about 60 years later after these events. So he's a historian. It's like someone today writing about World War II, okay? And so, starting in the very next verse, in Ezra chapter 4, verse 6, here's how Ezra continues to tell the story. He takes an example, a very specific example of opposition to God's work in his own day, and he basically says, this example that I'm about to show you, this happened 60 years ago. Same stuff. There's nothing new under the sun. Okay, and so I'm going to read Ezra chapter 4, verses 6 through 23. And I just want you to know in advance that the kings and the circumstances mentioned in these verses are different than what's mentioned in the first five verses of Ezra chapter 4. But it's the same dirty tricks played by the opponents of God's work. So here we go in Ezra chapter 4, verse 6. Ezra writes, this is the text of the letter. The Tatsunai, excuse me, I am in the wrong chapter. Let me back up to the right chapter. Thank you. At the beginning of the reign of Ahasuerus, the people who were already in the land wrote an accusation against the residents of Judah and Jerusalem. During the time of King Artaxerxes of Persia, and he names the opponents, Bishlam, Mithridath, Tabil, and the rest of his colleagues wrote to King Artaxerxes. The letter was written in Aramaic and translated. Rehum, the chief deputy, and Shimshai, the scribe, wrote a letter to King Artaxerxes concerning Jerusalem as follows. 
from Rehum, the chief deputy, Shimshai the scribe, and the rest of their colleagues, the judges and magistrates from Tripolis, Persia, Erech, Babylon, and Susa, that is the people of Elam, and the rest of the peoples whom the great and illustrious Ashurbanipal deported and settled in the cities of Samaria and the region west of the Euphrates River. That is quite an introduction. This is the text of the letter they sent to him. To King Artaxerxes from your servants, the men from the region west of the Euphrates River, they finally begin. Let it be known to the king that the Jews who came from you have returned to us at Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and evil city, finishing its walls and repairing its foundations. Let it now be known to the king that if that city is rebuilt and its walls are finished, they will not pay tribute, duty, or land tax, and the royal revenue will suffer. Since we have taken an oath of loyalty to the king, it is not right for us to witness his dishonor. We have sent to inform the king that a search should be made in your predecessor's record books. In these record books you will discover and verify that the city is a rebellious city, harmful to kings and provinces. There have been revolts in it since ancient times. That is why the city was destroyed. We advise the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls are finished, you will not have any possession west of the Euphrates. Basically saying, you allow this here, it's going to fall like dominoes everywhere. Verse 17, the king sent a reply to his chief deputy, Rehum, Shimshai the scribe, and the rest of their colleagues living in Samaria and elsewhere in the region west of the Euphrates River. Greetings. That's how you begin a letter. Not the other way. Greetings. I like that. Verse 18. The letter you sent us has been translated and read in my presence. I issued a decree and a search was conducted. It was discovered that this city has had uprisings against kings since ancient times. And there have been rebellions and revolts in it. Powerful kings have also ruled over Jerusalem and exercised authority over the whole region west of the Euphrates River, and tribute duty and land tax were paid to them. Therefore, issue an order for these men to stop so that this city will not be rebuilt until a further decree has been pronounced by me. See that you not neglect this matter. Otherwise, the damage will increase and the royal interests will suffer. As soon as the text of King Artaxerxes' letter was read to Rehum, Shimshai, the scribe, and their colleagues, they immediately went to the Jews in Jerusalem and forcibly stopped them. Here's the lesson. There will be opposition to God's work of rebuilding. Whether we're talking about rebuilding your life, or we're talking about rebuilding God's people, the church, there will be opposition. This is absolutely true when you be, allow God to rebuild your life. When God rebuilds your life, you are still you, however you have changed. You're a little bit different. 
God answers this prayer when He begins to rebuild your life. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And God begins to piece things back together for you. You see, when God rebuilds your life, He rebuilds beginning with the foundation, and then you become secure in Him. You know where you stand now. Jesus Christ is your cornerstone. Be mindful, there will be other competitors vying to become the foundation of your life. There will be other idols that seek to displace God from being the center point of your life. It might be the idol of, an, of a romantic relationship that tries to take first place in your life. It might be your desire for wealth, your desire for security that tries to take first place in your life. It might be false spiritual beliefs or personal philosophy that keeps you and not God at the center of your life. Whatever it is, there will be competitors that seek to displace God. But you need to learn to resist the opposition to God becoming the foundation of your life. When God becomes the foundation of your life, when He begins to rebuild your life, it affects your relationships. The people in your life who, who don't know God, they look at you and they say, what happened to you? I like the old you. But now, you know, you're all, you're all just focused on God. And so they won't like it. They'll oppose your renewed walk with God. But the old you is giving away, giving away to the new you. The new you yields to God. The new you says to God, let your will be done and not my will be done. And so don't go back. Don't give in to the opposition. Don't go back to living that old way that you have turned away from as you now follow after Christ. Stand firm in your faith, in fact, and invite your friends to come with you in a journey together with God. But not only will there be opposition to God's work in rebuilding your life, but there will be opposition to God's work in rebuilding His church. You see, throughout the years, because churches are made up of people, they tend to become settled in their ways. And even if those ways are not God's ways, they become settled in their ways. And before long, churches simply have a way of doing things. Why do we do things that way? Because that's the way we do things. That's the answer. And that's circular reasoning. Reasoning. It makes no sense. There's no logic to it. It's a non-answer. But as a church, we must always be willing to ask this question and answer it. What is God's way of doing this? What has God actually said in His Word about this? And we must have the boldness to obey God in His Word. When God goes about rebuilding a church... There will be opposition. And those opposed to doing things the way God has said in His Word should be warned that they are opposing the very work of God. And so whether we're talking about opponents to God's work in your life, opponents to God's work in the church, these opponents will use every tactic possible to get their way. Just like Ezra's opponents in his day, they used slander. To get their way. Ezra's opponent said, The Jews have a history of independence and rebellion. The Jews will not pay the tax owed to the king. But that was a slanderous accusation because that history was of a previous generation, not the one that had learned some lessons. 
And so they were taking something in the past and trying to fast forward it to the future. And just like Ezra's opponents, they not only will use slander to get their way, but they'll also use fear. They told the king, the king's treasury will be diminished. The king's going to lose face. The king's going to lose all of his authority west of the Euphrates River. And so they used the king's fear of losing money and power to give what they really wanted, which was control. The opponents of God always have control at the very center of what they desire. It's always about control. The opponents of God's work always want control. Why? Simply this. Because when you and I live with Jesus as Lord, it means that we yield control to Him. He calls the shots. We do as He desires. Not the will of someone else obsessed with control. And so there will be people from time to time in your life who will try to control you. Sometimes, if they can control you, it benefits them. But sometimes there's no tangible benefit to them trying to control you. They just love the power. They just love the ability to influence you. They love the power that they have over you. And so as you seek to yield yourself to God, just know that there will be opponents who will oppose you. They don't want Jesus to be Lord over you. They want to be Lord over you. Although they wouldn't say it that way. But that's exactly what they want. And what can be said of a believer trying to yield himself to God can also be said of a congregation seeking to yield itself to God. There will be opposition as God makes our church into what he wants it to become. And when that opposition comes, we will not be surprised, but we'll simply use the tools that God provides because we know that God's toolbox includes everything. God can use whoever He will to do whatever He wills, whenever He wills it, for the sake of His people and the sound of His glory. So let's see what's in God's toolbox today. Well, it's empty. There's nothing there. And sometimes God is silent for a season. Sometimes when we face opposition to doing God's work and we call out to God, there's nothing there. Sometimes the opposition is successful for a season. The final verse of Ezra chapter 4 reads this way. Going back to the first five verses in that setting there, it says, Now the construction of God's house in Jerusalem had stopped and remained at a standstill until the second year of the reign of King Darius of Persia. Who's Darius? We started with Cyrus the Great. Then there were two more kings. And then Darius came along. We're talking about a period of 16 years. 16 years from the beginning 
of the reconstruction of God's temple. For 16 years, there was opposition. For 16 years, the people that opposed God's will had the upper hand. For 16 years, those who yielded themselves to God were frustrated. And that's a long time to lose a battle, isn't it? Why didn't God give them victory right away? Couldn't God have done that? Absolutely. God can do anything He wants. So why didn't God give them victory right away? Let's put that in our own life. Why sometimes doesn't God give us victory right now over the specific circumstance that's troubling us? Why do we have to put up with the frustrations? Why do we have to put up with the opposition for seemingly so long? Well, I don't know every reason that God didn't give them victory right away, and I don't know every reason God makes us wait. Maybe God wants His people to seek Him all the more in prayer. Maybe God wants to test the faith, the resiliency of the faith of God's people. I mean, what kind of faith do we have if at the first sign of trouble we throw up our hands and say, that's it, God doesn't love me, God's abandoned me, God doesn't care, God failed me. What kind of faith is that? If your timetable and God's timetable are not quite in sync, who do you think is off? God is in it for the long term. God is in your life for the long term. God is in this church for the long term. God is doing a work in Northwest Lubbock for the long term. And so if you or Broadview Church or God's work in Lubbock have to put up with some opposition for a few days or a few weeks or a few months or a few years, that's okay. It does not change the purposes of of God. And so if we indeed and we will face opposition, what do we do? We're going to turn to God. And if we hear nothing, we will keep on asking. We will keep on seeking. We will keep on knocking. For we know what Jesus said about asking, seeking, and knocking. If you and I who are evil, would eventually respond to the continuous pleadings of someone in need, how much more will God, who is good, respond to the pleadings of our hearts? You and I can take our request for relief. We can take our request for anything directly to God. Why? Because when Jesus died on the cross, and when he rose from the grave, and when he, he ascended to heaven, he became our great high priest. That means that he and he alone is the mediator between God and humanity, between God and you and me. And because Jesus did what he did, 
We can go directly to the throne room of God with our requests, our humble requests. If today you have never before truly trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, I invite you today to trust Him for your salvation. Are you ready today to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord? Are you ready today to believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead?